you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 12. Today we're going to read verses 1 through 19, making it a little further today. Last week we looked at the first three verses and saw the death of James. This is James, one of the twelve. James, the son of Zebedee. James, the brother of John. These two brothers, you'll remember Jesus' nicknames, the Sons of Thunder. Tells us a lot about their personalities. Well, this James is killed with a sword. And when the king saw that this pleased his majority Jewish constituents, he proceeded to arrest Peter and has every intention of executing Peter as well. But as we shall see, as John Steinbeck put it, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. King Agrippa I, or King Herod Agrippa I, is about to be confronted with the fact that he is not the sovereign. He is not nearly as powerful and secure as he believed. And instead, it's not Herod's power we see, but the power of God on display in this text. Now, we might be tempted to think that, well, now the power of God is on display. It was missing the first three verses, but here it comes. And maybe we would conclude that, you know, God was away. He was distracted when James was killed. But he's not going to let this one slip. And he has showed up and he's not going to miss Peter. That's a belief that could not be further from the truth that we see displayed over and over again in the Word of God. And we would be wrong to believe that the power of God was not manifest in the death of James. Sure, in in this text we'll see today we're reminded vividly that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that just as He displayed His mighty works in rescuing His people from Pharaoh, He rescues His servant Peter from Herod's prison. But His power was not absent in the death of James. Surely James was strengthened by the Lord. Strengthened to speak the truth and no doubt thunderously testify of Christ in his final moments. James was strengthened to persevere until the end. Strengthened in assurance that he was only minutes and seconds away from being reunited with his Lord. Who himself had been executed but rose from the grave. Surely God Almighty upheld this son of thunder to the end. We see that sovereign power in today's text, but before we go any further, let's ask for his blessing. Almighty God, would you draw near during this time as we open your word and read it, and as it is preached, would you use it in a mighty way? Would you use it to chase away darkness 
to draw us near, that we would see the, the light of salvation in Christ. Would you build up and edify and teach and reprove your people for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 12, beginning in verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and, he, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly! And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod 
searched for him and did not find him. He examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea, or went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Here's your outline for today. A prayer meeting, a prison break, and a perplexed household. My preaching professor would be so proud of that alliteration. A prayer meeting, a prison break, and a perplexed household. The prayer meeting is the first thing we see. James has been killed, and now Peter has been arrested again. We've seen him arrested twice already. We're told that this happened during the days of unleavened bread. This is the time of the Passover. And because Peter's arrest happens during this time, Herod has to put the execution on ice. You remember he's trying to be a good Jewish king. He's claiming the Jewish ancestry of his grandmother, trying to be the best Jewish king he can be. And he's pandering to the people, and in order to do that, he has to follow the Jewish customs, which did not allow for executions during Passover. There's a reason Jesus was handed over to Pontius Pilate and the Romans. But the plan was that once the feast days were over, Herod could bring Peter out in front of the people and then say to the mob, What shall be done with this blaspheming apostate? But until then, Peter had to remain safely under lock and key. Well, how does the church respond to this? We're told in verse 5, they prayed. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. John Calvin says in his commentary that as soon as any persecution begins, go straight to prayer. Prayer is reflexive here. Uh, the people, not saying there's anything wrong with this, but the, the people, they don't, they don't go and protest outside of Herod's palace. They They don't start a legal defense fund for Peter. I'm sure the church was working in ways that were not recorded here, but it's, it's very insightful that the reflex to persecution was to go to the Lord in prayer. That's what the church did. And we see in verse 12 that there was a good number of believers gathered. Now, I have no doubt that there were individual Christians all over the city petitioning the Lord on Peter's behalf. But we're specifically told of a corporate gathering of the church, a prayer meeting, an unknown number of believers gathered to pray, and they're in a home. We're told that this home belonged to a woman named Mary. We're told that Mary is the mother of John Mark. We'll see later in Acts, John Mark serves with Paul for a time, but is dismissed. And then comes back and is Peter's aide 
And then he'll go on to write the Gospel of Mark. This is his mother's home. And the gate that Peter will knock on kind of gives the impression that maybe this is a larger home. The home of a wealthy family. A wall and a gate surrounding the home. A home that is large enough to support a prayer vigil attended by the church. Some theologians will even suggest that it's possible this is the location of the Last Supper. We don't know for certain, but it is where the church was gathered to pray in the home of Mary. And they're all together in fellowship, and they're they're of one heart and one mind, and they're petitioning the Lord on behalf of Peter. And we're told that they did so earnestly. This word in the Greek connotes stretching and straining. I'm sure associating those two words, stretching and straining to prayer, will remind you of some personal memories. Maybe a time when you prayed like that. Straining, struggling in prayer. That's the posture of the church earnestly beseeching God to either deliver Peter from prison and set him free so that he could continue his labor, or if you would not, give to Peter the same strength and perseverance you gave to James. Give him the same vision and faith that you gave to Stephen and allow him to die well, to die faithfully. That was their response. And it's encouraging and instructive because remember, James had already been killed. And Peter is completely out of reach, beyond human help. But they don't resign themselves to despair. They don't give up. They don't go home and just wait to hear the news that Peter has been killed. They gather together and earnestly pray for him. Now, the next thing we see is a prison break. And before we talk about the escape itself, I just want to briefly describe what Peter escaped from. Now, I'm not going to make the contention that this is the the deepest, darkest, most secure stronghold in the entire world. I'm sure you could have traveled to other places and found a deeper, darker dungeon. But for Jerusalem... This is pretty maximum security. Verse verse 4 tells us that Peter was delivered over to four squads of soldiers who were uh, stationed to guard him and him alone. Each squad was made up of four men. So four times four, 16. You have 16 total men devoted to Peter. They would have different shifts. We're told that Two of these men were stationed outside of the cell, making sure that he did not come out of the door. And then within the cell, there were two men on either side of Peter. Peter was chained to the wall. It's possible he was even chained to his guards. And then by 
the miraculous chance that he escaped his bonds and was able to subdue the two soldiers inside the cell and outside the cell. Then he had the rest of the prison guards to deal with and a massive iron gate that was closed. There's no human escape that's going to happen here. Well, Luke tells us that the very night before the execution, someone else joins Peter in his cell. Someone unlooked for. One minute Peter is sleeping in this dark cell between two armed guards, and the next the room is filled with blazing white light. And there standing before them is the angel of the Lord. One of the heavenly servants of the king of kings. Now, what happens here? This angel appearing and rescuing Peter. As, as uh, Derek Thomas would say, you either believe this or you don't. You believe this or you don't. And there are lots of people who will try to explain this and other similar instances away. Saying that Peter was hallucinating. Which means he was seeing something that was not there. He was delusional. Or he was just lying. And of course they would say that because, hey, our sophisticated enlightened society and where where we are it's it's ridiculous to believe in invisible spiritual realities such as angels i would remind the christian believers that our faith is uncompromisingly supernatural if you have a problem with this angel showing up there is you've you've got so many bigger problems to solve first Like the fact that we serve a God who is invisible. Who we have not seen or heard audibly speak. We worship the Lord Jesus who was born of a virgin. Conceived when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary. Not only that, who died and rose from the grave. And then was taken bodily up into heaven like a balloon going out of sight. And then, by the way, there were two angels there who said he's going to return. You will see him return in the same way he departed. And not only that. Think about these spiritual invisible servants. These angels who will at times be made visible. They're there at the birth of Jesus, testifying to it. They ministered to Jesus in the wilderness after his temptation. They were present at his resurrection and spoke to the women who found his empty tomb. And of course, they were there at the ascension. Ours is an uncompromisingly supernatural faith. And I would ask you to remember... That your inability to see something does not rule out its existence. Just because you can't see something doesn't mean it isn't there. There was a time 
before the existence of the telescope that there were planets and stars that we could not see. Did those planets and stars come into existence with the invention of the telescope? No. We were made able to see them. Or think about the entire field of microbiology and the invention of the microscope. For the very first time, we were able to see tiny organisms that we had no idea existed before. Did they come into existence with the invention of the microscope? No. I mean, you think about this room right now. How many of those critters are around us in this room? I have no idea. I can't even begin to guess. And and these are very real creatures. Creatures that if you had some type of ray gun, like from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and you blew these things up to the size of a minivan, they'd be terrifying. And they surround us all the time. I can't imagine anything scarier than a nematode the size of an F-150. And yet they surround us all the time. Just because we can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And the evidence of our bias is so obvious. The evidence of the hardness and unbelief of the human heart. You have very real things like stars and nematodes and viruses that we cannot perceive on our own. And yet we accept them readily. But then we can very quickly turn around and say that the existence of invisible spiritual realities is an utter impossibility because we can't see them. Just as we're in a room surrounded by all kinds of microorganisms, we live in a world surrounded by invisible spiritual realities. My favorite story of this is from 2 Kings 6. Elisha and his servant are in the city of Dothan. The enemy king, the king of Syria, surrounds the city. He wants to take out Elisha. Elisha's been causing a lot of problems for him. And Elisha's servant looks out over the walls of the city and he's terrified. And he begins to despair because he sees the city completely surrounded. And he goes to Elisha. And Elisha says those famous words, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. But this servant couldn't see. He had no idea what he was talking about. And then Elisha prays and says, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And notice, Elisha didn't say, cause him to to hallucinate and see a vision of something that's not really there so that he'll be comforted. No. Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes so that he will see what is really there. Open his eyes to the present spiritual realities. And the Lord does this. He opens the eyes of this young man, and what does he see? 
the army of heaven and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What a sight that would have been. And yet those same heavenly beings are constantly around you and me. The writer of Hebrews says that they are ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Psalm 34 says the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 91, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. When we think about the goodness of God and the provision of God, don't forget his providing these heavenly servants to minister and watch over his people. You know, you don't have to read many Christian biographies before you start to see stories like this pop up over and over and over again. And since we talked about John Payton last week, I'm just going to go back to him. You've got the backstory already. When his, his, first, his first wife dies, he ministers on that island for a number of years and then returns to Scotland. He remarries and then goes back to the New Hebrides in the South Pacific with his second bride. And John Payton recounts one terrifying night when his, his ministry station, it's his house, his, this little thatched hut, is surrounded by angry natives and they're threatening to burn the house down and then kill John Payton and his wife. They'll either be burned or when they flee the house, they'll be killed then. So that's the scene. Angry, screaming, armed natives with torches Surrounding this house and John Payton and his wife on the inside, praying that God would protect them. And they prayed all night. And morning came and they were safe. The Lord delivered them. And Payton had no explanation except the hand of God protected them. Well, about a year later, John Payton is having a conversation with one of the tribal chiefs. And this chief had recently come to saving faith in Christ. And during the course of the conversation, John Payton makes the connection that this man was one of the ones who had surrounded his home and threatened them. And so Payton asks the chief, why didn't you and your warriors burn down our house and kill us. And the chief replied saying, who were all those men you had with you there? John Payton said, there were no men there, just my wife and I. And the chief argued that they had seen many men standing guard. Hundreds of big Men in shining garments with drawn swords in their hands. And they seemed to circle the house so that the natives were afraid to attack. Now, like Derek Thomas said, you either believe this or you don't. But I would encourage you to remember the words of the Apostle Paul who said in Ephesians 3 that the God we approach in prayer, He is able to do... and He is able to do above and beyond all that we ask and think. 
He can do above and beyond all that we ask and think. This angel shows up. This escort of the Lord Jesus. And there's no mention of any reaction from the guards. You know, perhaps they were cast into a deep sleep. Perhaps they were incapacitated on the ground like the soldiers guarding Jesus' tomb. Maybe their eyes were blinded to the spiritual reality right in front of them and they simply couldn't see it or, and their ears were stopped up and they couldn't hear. We, we don't know. But what we do know is that this angel has to strike Peter to wake him up. I love this. Peter is in his jail cell the night before his execution and he is passed out. He is sleeping so hard that this blazing heavenly light doesn't wake him. He's at such peace and he's able to sleep. His conscience is clear. He's resting in the care of his heavenly father. No doubt he'd shared the gospel with his guards. He'd spent time in prayer and then closed his eyes and passed out. Resting in the Lord Jesus. So the angel strikes him to wake him up and says, Get up quickly. And Peter's chains, we're told, fall off his hands. The angel tells him to get dressed, follow me. And here is Peter, still waking up, groggy, confused, but he does what he's told, even though he doesn't comprehend that what is happening in that moment is reality. He thinks he's dreaming or seeing some vision, and it doesn't hit him that this really happened until he's free and alone standing on a city street. He's free of his chains. He'd walked right past the guards, and that big iron gate opened like an automatic door at Walmart. Just as the children of Israel passed through the bed of the Red Sea on dry ground, Peter walks right through the gate without anyone having to touch it. See the power of God in salvation. The last thing we see is a perplexed household. Peter knows exactly where to find the church. He knows where they'll be gathered, and he also knows that there will be quite a commotion in the city in just a few hours. And so he needs to get the message of what happened to him to the apostles. And then he needs to find some place to hunker down quiet and out of the way until things settle. So he goes to Mary's house. And what happens is comical, isn't it? I mean, it, it's, you can imagine something similar happening on a sitcom with a laugh track. He goes to Mary's house and knocks on the door. Sir, uh, the servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the gate, asks, who is it? She recognizes Peter's voice. And she's so excited, she just doesn't let him in. She just runs back inside and tells everyone who is in there praying that, hey, he's outside. And what do they say? You're out of your mind. And then here they are arguing back and forth, and the whole time Peter is knocking on the gate, let me in. 
And then finally, of course, the gate is opened. Peter tells his story and instructs them to give this message to James, the brother of Jesus, and the rest of the brothers. But doesn't their reaction here strike you as familiar? So the other night, our family was in my car and we're driving through the neighborhood and I'd done a run outside and it was incredibly cold and we're going home and there's still snow on the ground and Louie was wanting to sled in the cold darkness and I said no that did not make her happy she retorts something back to me and in that moment I belly laughed and I laughed because I knew it was precisely something that I would have said to my parents. Something I did say to my parents when I was a kid. I saw myself in her. Don't we see ourselves in the reaction of those praying in Mary's home? I mean, how many times have we prayed for something? We'll go to the Lord and pray and then we'll walk away. That's never going to happen. This, they're so perplexed here. How can Peter be at the door? He's in prison. They've been earnestly praying for him over a number of days, and now he's freed and he's here standing at the door, and they can't believe it. God has obviously given them more than they were hoping for. He gave them the very thing. The very thing they were praying for actually happened. Last thing I want you to see, this closing application is something we're going to sing about in just a moment. It's how this angelic rescue mission is made personal for every single one of us. So I want you to think of Peter chained to that wall in the dark cell, guarded by armed soldiers asleep, completely unaware of his surroundings, impending death right around the corner. Picture that in your mind. That helpless condition is the spiritual reality of every single human being prior to the Lord sovereignly performing a great work of salvation. You know, we can have this false image of the neutral human, the enlightened man, the modern man, one who is freely walking in light and making their own decisions, untethered to anything. And some, I guess reasoning at wisdom, choosing to follow Christ. But that is not the case. Every single human being begins here, locked in this spiritual dungeon. They've been there since birth and we're used to it and comfortable with it. We love the darkness because as the scriptures say, our deeds were evil. This is a picture of every single human. You could take all of humanity and divide it into two groups. Those who are still in this cell, enslaved by their passion, chained to their sins, possessions of the enemy, and then those who have been the recipients 
of a divine rescue that was not their own idea. What we see in Peter's rescue is a depiction of that verse. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And if God had not intervened, we would have remained in spiritual darkness until our deaths. In Acts 12, we see a depiction, a dramatization of the very real spiritual deliverance that happens the moment a sinner is brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This story of Peter's deliverance helps us understand our deliverance. Our conversion is like coming out of a dark dungeon. We were those who were hopeless, beyond any human aid. Those who are imprisoned in darkness. Wretches saved by amazing grace. And if God had not intervened, we would have remained in that darkness. But God did intervene. He sovereignly worked. And at the appointed time, the cell was filled with light. The knowledge of God and the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus was seen. Even when we were unaware of it and insensitive to it, God sent His Spirit to come and strike and wake us sleepers. To awaken our conscience. And we were freed. The shackles that tethered us to our sin removed and we were told, get up, get dressed. And follow me. Of course, once freed, we know there are still enemies. There's still oppression. This is the Christian life. But in the end, he brings all his people safely through. As Matthew Henry writes, he says, The iron gate shall be opened to us to enter into the new Jerusalem where we shall be perfectly freed from all the marks of our captivity and brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's why we're about to sing this final hymn. I know it can be difficult at times to sing, but it is such a picture of this rescue. Charles Wesley writes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Isn't that all our stories? Maybe it happened earlier in life. Maybe it happened later in life. But regardless, this has happened for every Christian. Maybe like Peter, you're still in a haze, not comprehending exactly what happened, not understanding the the depth and the wonder of this salvation. But Christian, you have been saved. 
God Almighty, because of his great love which, with, with which he loved us, not because of anything in us, not because of anything we had done or would do, he came and freed us and brought us to new life and said, follow my son. Let's pray. Almighty God, would you give us eyes to see, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Strengthen our assurance, strengthen our trust and our ability to rest. That, that image of Peter sleeping and resting in your care, Father, would you do that same work in all our hearts? Build our trust in the one who has done everything for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.